0: Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's panel, we have the unsinkable optimist Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer in Toronto, Canada, the fiery and brilliant Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State, the all-around badass Jessica Luther, independent writer, general slayer and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas. The brilliant wordsmith, Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in DC. And I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, coming from the Hudson Valley in New York. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers out there about the Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, it can be as low as a couple bucks. To become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you can get access to special rewards, extra segments of the podcast, monthly newsletter, an opportunity to record on the burn pile, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So many rewards. We are so grateful for your support. This week, we're gonna discuss racism and sexism in coaching, domestic violence in the NFL. And Jessica interviews Gloria Navarez, who, when she was hired as the commissioner of the West Coast Conference of the NCAA earlier this year, became the first Latina commissioner of a Division I conference. Before that, let's spend a moment on the amazing young women that just finished playing the under-17 Women's World Cup in Uruguay this past Saturday, December 1st. I think I should start with Shireen, given Canada's presence in the... Oh, okay. All right. Jessica.
2: (laughs) Jessica, i start with Jessica. No, I just... (laughs) Poor Canada. But it was exciting (laughs) to see New Zealand win. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a ton about... I feel like my knowledge of this came from last week's podcast, which was brilliant. But yeah, it sounds like, you know, Spain beat Mexico, New Zealand over Canada. And, you know, I don't know anything about New Zealand soccer. So I was excited to see that. Country up there. Uh,
0: does everyone in New Zealand okay with being called Kiwis? I have I, no I, idea. I see it all the time, and I think I that is not a. F- Yes. What do you think? It's like it. Do you think it's like I a don't know. Swirl? I just wouldn't <laughs> want to be called a kiwi all the time. Like I like kiwis, but they're like weird and fuzzy, and they taste I, good. I mean I don't know. They're they're tangy. Uh, they're tangy and fuzzy. Okay, but you know I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Like if I had to be referred to as a food. Kiwi would not be the thing I'd want to go back to all the time, you know. I'm from the Midwest. I I wouldn't want to be like a corner Tusker. That is a thing, and I wouldn't want to be that Tusker. there are people. Oh, right, but but they the husk But women's World Cup. Okay, Shereen, <laughs> what did you think about Canada's Canada's? Uh- uh- <laughs> Presents. Oh,
3: Canada in the first 15 seconds, that was rough Like against New Zealand. I was thrilled, and I think we should also note that it was the first time for New Zealand to be up in the you know semifinals and then be up in the top four. It was a historic moment. I think the question about Kiwis is a good one, and so our New Zealand flamethrowers, please let us know how you feel about the tangy, fuzzy fruit and being addressed as so. Now, Anna Karpenko, she's like 16 or almost 17. She's from in Richmond Hill close to Toronto that move in the first 15 seconds a error cost canada in my opinion the bronze the third place specifically because it was an absolute defensive error there wasn't enough time for her to release the ball the way it should have been and new zealand was waiting they were absolutely waiting grace wisniewski was there and she was ready to fire and she did and i saw the face and the reaction of the goalkeeper karpenko right after she put her hands to her face. In frustration and in sadness, because she knew exactly what happened. And that goal at the 15 second mark was the fastest goal in that time period for the under 17 ever in the history of, of, of the tournament. So that was terrible. I'm also the mother of a goalkeeper and I know that pain and it's not a nice one and that will haunt her for a very long time. And it was just a breakdown. They weren't warmed up sufficiently, but New Zealand was ready to go. And it's the difference between Spain and Mexico. I only caught half of the match. I think that I'm really happy. I feel like Spain has been the superior team. I mean, they took this tournament in 2016 in MN Jordan. They're incredible. They're fiery. Of course, we're all rooting for Mexico because they're also the underdogs. First time they were up in the top two. So I just, I mean, I love the Mexican team. I love the spirit with which they play. But Spain is a really, really formidable team, and I want these these young girls, these young women to soak it up because of the fact that their federation is a disaster. And as they get to be women, they'll be thrown into the usual system of misogyny and sexism and inequality. So there's that.
0: One of the things that's so strange about the U-17 is how it just hasn't translated to results at the adult level. So North Korea has won twice, for example. And, and they, even, they, were, they were only defeated by Spain. And the quarterfinals were really exciting. Three out of four went to pens. So it was a great tournament. But it is kind of strange to think to yourself, like, I would love to see this translate into more support for this cohort going forward for Mexico, especially upsetting that they didn't qualify for the Women's World Cup. So this is kind of great to see. And it's very hopeful. But it is always confusing to me why it doesn't translate you know we just don't we haven't seen historically the u17 translate into into that success so it's kind of interesting to watch from i was also hoping that uruguay would do better you know it was the women were really excited to have the tournament there it was sort of a drag to see them you know get thrashed as they did and then to have the attendance be pretty pretty sparse so just our, our love and solidarity and uh, out there to the uruguayan women who who really like did so much to organize this Shireen. Just two
3: or three last points. First of all, Diego Forlan <laughs> is a beautiful, beautiful man. And yes. I love seeing him there to offer the trophy for presentation. Mm-hmm. I'm so okay with the Uruguayan kits being really tight. He's, oh, me too. Yeah. Secondly, <laughs> a nod to the coaching staff. I know for Canada, Rianne Wilkinson, a former national team player, was actually the coach and she took this team really far, limited resources. So props to those players that come back and they coach. And I want to see more players in the Canadian system. I want to see more players women players become coaches in the entire system lastly the highlight of this entire tournament for me was when Giannu infantino the gross person that he is the president of fifa was there to present the trophy the spanish team was basically like give us the trophy and then get out of our way and then they hoisted it in happiness like he was as recognized by them the champions of being as insignificant as he really is so that was a (laughs) great moment
0: I always love to see a whole ton of disrespect hurled at Infantino, (laughs) who I call Johnny, by the way. All right. Great. Well, you know, wonderful tournament. Nice to see it wrap up like this. This week, we saw quite a few developments around the topic in social media and beyond around the topic of racism and sexism in coaching. Shireen, do you want to walk us through some of what's been going on? Thanks,
3: Brenda. I think that this topic of, and specifically about black women coaches in the NCAA is a really important one. I mean, we saw it come up last year in the Undefeated when they did Dawn Staley of South Carolina, won the championship. It was a riveting, incredible tournament, and we were all like fixated. It was absolutely fabulous. But you know, when we sit back and after we relish in the victories, let's talk very seriously about the representation. And Dawn Saley actually this week had a really powerful piece in the Players Tribune where she talked about her own upbringing from North Philly. She talked about her rise to the top and she talked very much about socioeconomic divide as well as racial divide. And that's really important to note. She also talked in the statistics she quoted was 90% of the folks playing are black girls. Why is that representation not there? Or, sorry, rather, she said 90% of the coaches were white. Sorry, that's what she said. So, I mean, when we defer to that and say, well, why is there not representation? It's about opportunity. Then there was this incredible roundtable that the Players' Tribune also hosted. And these are all, we'll put these links in the in the show notes to, to talk about it. There's NCAA coaches, Don Staley, as I said, Carolyn Peck, Felicia Leggett-Jack, Yolette McEwen, and Vanessa Blair Lewis. And these are all very accomplished, really incredible women. Some former players, most former players, but just, but they talk about it and what they talked about in this to me that was the most harrowing in this conversation that every it's about 20 minutes everybody should listen to it was that they're always on the fear that if they can't get it done they'll be replaced and that's the word that was used we're replaceable and that really shook me because they're not replaceable they're incredibly valuable but their worth is not recognized
0: amira you want to add some historical context to this discussion
4: yeah sure so when we think about the long history of black women coaching, you look pre Title IX, a lot of black women were in char physical educators in charge of developing competitive athletics at historically black colleges and universities. And that's really where you had the most, I think, accessibility to sport. There's a, a for instance, around 1940, only 25% of black colleges and universities said that sports for women were bad, whereas 83% of mainstream, predominantly white institutions didn't want to offer competitive athletics to women at the same time. And so they had a lot of opportunity within that. But even within that space, you saw by the mid-century um a lot of Black women being pushed out of those coaching positions in favor for Black men who saw opportunities to craft competitive teams and compete at the national and international level. And so as uh, sports were more legitimized within historically Black colleges and universities, Black men took over those coaching positions from Black women, despite early, I think, you know, barrier breakers like Nell, I was going to say Nell Painter, she's a historian, <laughs> like Nell Jackson and and whatnot. And then what you have is a similar effect in the wake of Title IX in which when you have Title IX legislation passed in the early 70s, 90, over 90% of coaches of women's uh, sports in college, for instance, are women. Now that number is less than half. And so that's an enormous dropout. And one of the things that has happened is a similar process. As soon as Title IX mandates that if you take federal uh, funds, you have to provide equitable educational opportunities, which of course spill over to athletics in high school and college sports, it creates a motivation for schools to now invest, even if they're not investing much, but invest in the women's game. And it legitimizes competitive athletics for girls or women, that again, you see an influx of men, now predominantly white men, into coaching positions and an exodus of women from those head coaching ranks in particular, but all the way down. And so you have that kind of double whammy happening that creates this atmosphere that we're dealing with now, where it's very hard for women to get into the coaching game. And then if you want to disaggregate that more, it's, very hard for Black women, Latinas, Asian uh, women to get into coaching ranks, even in that smaller pool.
2: Jessica? Yeah. And just building on what Amira just laid out, you get this thing where even female athletes are much more comfortable being coached by men, because that's what coming up through the ranks, they're more likely to be coached by men. And so it's not just that they aren't even seeing themselves and seeing that possibility. I mean, All of these women talk about how important it is just to see that women can coach, that women of color can coach, that Black women can coach, that that inspires other women to do the same thing. Dawn Staley was very clear about that in her piece. But you also get this other kind of effect where the players themselves come, they internalize that as normal, that men are coaches. And so all this sort of misogyny that leaks into the way we think about leadership and who should be in charge, you know, that's coming from the players themselves too. And so they're working through that as well when they think about who can be a coach. And there's just so much work to do in order to unpack all of it on, you know, on top of just the systemic way that men hire men, white men hire white men. Most of the people in sports administration are white men, most athletic directors. Like it's such a big deal when a woman and especially a woman of color or a black woman is hired as an athletic director that like, you know, she ends up on our badass woman of the week, whenever it happens, because it's so rare, still to this day. And so you have all of this that's going on. And every time I hear that history of what happened after Title IX passed with men suddenly deciding that women's athletics is a space that they want to be in, and then therefore, have really infiltrated in a way that has sidelined women, female coaches, just it hurts every time when I hear it. Lindsay?
1: Yeah, it it hurts. That's a really good way to put it, Jess. Because we, Title IX has been such a monumentally good thing for women's sports in all areas, except for this one. But it's a big one. It's hard to talk about this without talking about just sexism and racism in general. Like Jess said, it's there. It's in the air we breathe. Everyone kind of is exposed to this. Reality that the people in charge are older white men, and that is just how it is supposed to be. And so what I see is is leagues, even progressive leagues like the WNBA, when going gets tough, when there's a really, really bad season, when there's a few really bad seasons. And they have a black woman or black man at the helm. And, you know, the results have been bad. It makes perfect sense for them to fire or let go of that coach, right? There's nothing bad about their decision to let go of their coach, except you're firing someone. But you most... Always, I don't have any data, but it just feels like you must always see them follow that up by hiring a white man back, right? Like going back to what they're most comfortable in. One of the threads I am interested in watching, though, is because women's sports, women's pro sports are slightly farther ahead right now than they were 20 years ago. Not as farther ahead as we would like them to be, but slightly. I think we are seeing slowly, surely more chances for women because you're not able to say... Oh, well, they didn't play. They haven't played since they left college or anything like that. You know, just in the NBA right now, of course, we have Becky Hammond, who's still an assistant at the Spurs and seems, I mean, she's been there for so long. She's turning down other opportunities because she wants to be the first woman to be a head coach of an NBA team. And she knows the best way to stay there to do that is to stay within Popovich's system. So this year, she's in the front row. She's one of the front row coaches instead of the back row coaches on game day you've also had this year Chrissy Tolliver who is an active WNBA player who's now an assistant coach for the Washington Wizards you don't get that opportunity unless you have the WNBA right you have well, maybe even Lindsey um, Whalen
2: like even Lindsay Whalen see. going into NCAA coaching I mean it makes sense she's coming out of the right, WNBA exactly. yeah. that's a
1: great point and Lindsay Whalen, uh Chastity Melvin, who is now a coach with the Greensboro Swarm, the NBA, w- NBA G League. She's an assistant coach there. She went through the NBA assistant coaches program. I interviewed her a few weeks ago. I haven't um finished the piece yet. But it was fascinating. You know, she went through this program that is us- that WNBA players haven't taken advantage of. Nobody's thought to include WNBA players in this program. She went. She was better than everyone. She pretty quickly got a job after just one year in this assistant, in this coach's program, right? She was in the WNBA for years and years. You know, it's keeping women involved in the game for longer. Sue Bird is now in the front office with the Denver Nuggets, right? She's doing some front office work. Tamika Catchings is doing work with the Indiana Pacers. So... Because of this, you're seeing these women who are staying around the sports longer. And then when people are like, oh, we just want the best person for the job. Well, guess what? Because women have been given this opportunity to stay in the profession longer. They're now, it's much now, there are a few, lot less excuses to include them as the best person in the job. And furthermore, I want to give shout outs to the women's professional football leagues that we see around the United States. There are a couple of them. Most of the female coaches that we're seeing in the NFL have come through those ranks. And those leagues get none of the support that the WNBA gets, right? But these women are staying in these grassroots leagues for longer. They're playing linebacker. They're playing all these positions. They're getting coaching opportunities within these leagues. And that is leading them to then be able to kind of get their foot in the door in the professional ranks. It's keeping women around sports longer.
3: Shereen? Yeah, I just wanted to actually loop in the SB Nation piece that came out this week talking about this, which sort of to a degree links, is linking what we're talking about. I mean, the racial. Analysis in this piece is non-existent, but Tim Struby wrote it and it was like, why aren't there many women in coaching was the tweet that came out. And I think that, I mean, the attempt to talk about this issue was good, but the way it was framed was problematic for me. Like I said, the racial issue, the analysis, the socioeconomic piece wasn't included. And also it was written by a man. So my whole thing is that that this is reflective systemically of the problem we see through sports the whole way down. This piece could have been written by a woman. I mean, it could have been written by anyone on this podcast. It could have been written by our friends and colleagues out there, but it wasn't. And that's so indicative. You don't get a pass for just talking about it and saying, well, we're pointing out the obvious problem. That's not fixing the issue. So I'm a bit salty about that, and I'm going to be okay with being salty about that. So that's it.
0: Amira.
4: Yeah, it's. I was thinking about this this week uh, and I really liked what Lindsay brought up because I was thinking about opportunities and what those looks like and how do we foster opportunities and pathways to coaching. And I feel like so much of the fight with girls and women in sport is to just get on the field. And I think we're just starting to try to push that conversation beyond that. So what happens after you get off the field or if you have aspirations within the sporting world that isn't necessarily as an athlete, but as a coach or announcer or whatever it is. And I was thinking about this a few weeks ago. See Vivian Stringer became, what, the sixth NCAA coach to win a 1,000 games, head coach for Rutgers women's basketball. And I was writing a piece about the history of cheerleading, black cheerleader protests. And C. Vivian Stringer actually sued her high school in Pennsylvania in the 60s to be able to integrate their cheerleading squad. But what's interesting about it is what she cited as the reason for doing it. She said, I didn't really want to be a cheerleader, but yelling on the sidelines and being active on the sidelines is the closest I could get to telling those boys how to get to get it together and get in line. So I'm reflecting on what it is for a teenage C. Vivian Stringer to integrate (laughs) a cheerleading squad because it gets her on the sidelines to tell the boys what to do because she wants to coach. (laughs) 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 And she knew from that age that she wants to coach. And so what that looks like, if we think about opportunities and pathways and the kind of long history of the desire of women and women of color, particularly to be on the sidelines coaching, um, either from the get-go or after they've had a storied athletic career themselves.
0: This week, Jessica
2: interviewed Gloria Nevarez. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Gloria Navarez, who, when she was hired earlier this year by the West Coast Conference, became the first Latina Commissioner of a Division One conference. Welcome to Burn It All Down, Gloria. Thank you. Thank you for having
5: me. I'm excited to be chatting with you today.
2: So I thought we'd start today with the conference itself. Can you tell us a little bit about it, how big it is, what schools are in it? It's the
5: West Coast Conference, commonly known as the WCC, and we are private schools on the West Coast. Average enrollment is about 7,800. That includes BYU, which skews that stat a little bit. It'd be much lower without BYU. Uh, North to south, we have Gonzaga, Portland. You have in the Bay Area, four schools, St. Mary's, Santa Clara, University of San Francisco, and University of Pacific, which is a little bit out near Sacramento. And in the south, we have Pepperdine and Loyola Marymount University. So schools that have been around a long time. And have achieved a lot of success. What I love about this league is you've been saying we box outside our weight class. We um this <laughs> fall alone, we've had think about the stat, 13 teams ranked in the top 25 nationally. For our size and our footprint, you know, and all the competition in this in the West and, and across all the sports. It's an amazing that includes all the fall sports and men's basketball. That represents eight different sports, four men, four women and six of our 10 schools. So for us to have that kind of success in breadth and depth and diversity, it's really amazing considering our budget size and enrollment numbers relative to the Power 5 conferences.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about what you actually do as commissioner? Like, what does it mean to be the commissioner? What is your
5: day-to-day like? Make sure everybody plays nicely together. No, I'm just kidding. We... <laughs> <laughs> so as the commissioner, we, our jurisdiction, so to speak, is really the governance of league play and championships at a very high level. So we create schedules to make sure that we crown a champion, either through regular season or actually have an event to do that. And then we also have an external function as far as we own all the media rights. So we negotiate and govern the television agreements uh, through the league. And we have a digital network, the W.TV. And so we produce and own and, and run that.
2: So can we talk about the path to becoming the commissioner of the conference? You were a basketball player,
5: correct? Correct. About 100 years ago. What position did you play? I was recruited as a shooting guard at UMass Amherst, but then due to some coaching turnover, I ended up playing my last two years under the basket as a small forward, and I'm really only (laughs) (laughs) 5'8". What so it was a lot you, of boxing out, a lot of boxing out.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. What did you love about playing basketball?
5: I love sports. I grew up playing soccer, softball, and basketball. Softball actually was probably my first love. Oh, but basketball okay. season and recruiting for that came first. And so I got a full scholarship offer to UMass. And the way my family and I looked at about the college decision was <laughs> free. Yes. Count us in.
2: Right, right. What did you learn as a student and an athlete when you were at UMass.
5: I really appreciate, and you know, you see all the statistics and the data about women who play sports do better in the C-suite. For me Mm -hmm. personally, I attribute that to learning to compete And honestly, learning to lose and still compete. So when you're in the boardroom and you're going toe to toe to someone, how to do it without taking it personally. I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg's quote about, you know, fight for things you're passionate about and do it in a way that others will follow you. And I really believe I learned those lessons through sports. You know, you have to be with a group of people who you might not ordinarily be friends with. You might not ordinarily hang out with, but for the, you know, nine months out of the year that you're in basketball, ball season, those are your besties and you got to make it work. And that that's such a great life lesson. And even more importantly, a business lesson, because you don't pick your colleagues or you don't pick your adversaries, but you got to live with them and you got to work with them and, and you got to go toe to toe with them. And I just, I really attribute those lessons to sport because you don't, oh, that person doesn't like me or that person, you know, disagreed with me. So they must not respect me. And that's not the case at all. It's just business.
2: What was it like as a Latina on UMass's campus? My understanding is UMass is pretty white overall.
5: Um, (laughs) Yes. What was that like for you? You know, it's funny because UMass, not the school, but I think the area considers itself like the Berkeley of the East Coast. But you know, if you're from this area and actually know the real Berkeley, it's like, yeah, I get that. You're a little more liberal, but nobody's really the Berkeley of anywhere. <laughs> except for Berkeley. <laughs> but I did love UMass. I grew up in Bay Area, California. So okay. my whole high sc- high school experience and growing up was very diverse. I had a lot of Filipina Asian friends So, when I got to UMass, I didn't think of myself as a Latina at all. I'm actually half Mexican, a fourth Filipina, and a fourth Irish. I identify more just last name and culturally growing up with the Mexican side of my family. But I got a letter. So, I signed my letter of intent late to UMass. So, I missed orientation. I show up, you know, at the dark of night, get picked up by the basketball GA, get brought to my dorm, go through my mail the next day, and I get this letter, Dear Student of Color. And I had no idea what that meant. I thought perhaps oh. we got assigned colors during orientation like a, you know, blue group or a green group. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Elena Silva, the other Latina on my floor in the dorm, had to break it all down to me. What, what it meant, <laughs> how few of us there were. <laughs> It really became part of my identity because there were few of us. There wasn't that diversity there. And then, you know, the athletics group becomes your family. And and most of those, you know, f- basketball, football players, other sports of diverse backgrounds. So right. it definitely became almost like a little social group in, in among itself there for That's me.
2: Interesting. How did you actually end up in sports administration? Like why did you want to do that particular work?
5: (laughs) Again, I missed orientation because I signed so (laughs) late. So (laughs) this is embarrassing to admit. The basketball team enrolled me in major and classes. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, because you know, they had to, you know, do my paperwork and it was all done so late. So I started in that major because that's where the program put me and I just loved it. One, there were a lot of other athletes in the program, but it was a backbone of business, which is where I thought I might lean toward, but with a sport focus, which was really kind of novel at the time. Now there's quite a few programs. Back then it was maybe UMass and Ohio State. So it really kind of fit me and I loved it and just stuck with it. Probably one of the few people who actually works in their major.
2: Yeah, that's true. I think that's pretty uncommon. And what do you like what are the rewards that you get from doing this work? What do you love about it?
5: I'm one of the few people who've worked both on campus and conference and kind of bounced back and forth. And so during my campus days, I really enjoy still working closely with the student athletes. I mean, it's such a great I I value my time as a student athlete in college. And it's such a great time in your life. You're learning who you are. You're trying to figure things out. You're playing collegiate sports at at the highest level, but there's still young people trying to work through young people issues. And so I I really appreciate providing great experiences for that cohort of people, college athletics. At the conference level, you know, on my worst day, my job is still to work in sports and and watch games and (laughs) root for these young people doing great things. So for me... For my love of sports and basketball, it can't get much better than that. Do you get to go to a lot of games? I do. You know, I think it's really important for conference staff to get out and get on campus. It's You don't want to be that ivory tower rule from afar. You really need to get into campus, network with folks, and learn about what the challenges and issues are on a daily basis. Hmm, that's cool. That would be a cool part of the job. My travel footprint is pretty fantastic. I mean, <laughs> San Diego, LA, Portland, Spokane, Provo, Utah. I mean, the bay you just, they're all vacation spots. I mean, my, my husband has his own business, so he's able to travel with me quite a bit. And there's rarely a trip he doesn't try to make work. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that sounds amazing. I do want to ask you, though, about the other side of this, the challenges. I mean, we talk a lot on Burn It All Down about the fact that sports media, sports administration tends to be a white male space, and you have made it to the top of sports administration as a Latina. What kind of challenges have you faced?
5: You know, it's hard. to That's a hard question for me, because when I think about the things that may have been challenges, it's hard to pinpoint whether those were gender-based or racially-based. You know, sure, of course. when I started one of my first BCS jobs early, early in my career, the athletic director introduced me as, you know, hey, this is our compliance person and she's much better looking than the last guy. Oh, and, wow. You know, I laughed. And honestly, in my naivete, I didn't, Think of it as offensive or a slap in the face. I almost probably took a little bit of pride in, Oh, you know, I'm one of the guys. They can joke with me about that. But, you know, looking back, wow, you know, right. I, I, sort of, <laughs> I should have said something. Hey, I have a law degree. I done this job well. I'm qualified to be here. But assuming that people knew that or heard that was my first default rather than standing up saying, you know, this is my resume. So it's those types of things that I think go along to get along. That might have not made things feel like issues that should have been red flags to me at the time.
2: Sure. I think we all
5: have that kind of thing. Looking back, it's always easy to see it there. Well, in sport, it really is about the networking and being invited to that golf outing and being invited to that, you know, beers after the game or dinner or whatever in a professional sense. So you get to know the power players in a more relaxed setting that I know I missed out on those invites just because I wasn't part of that group.
2: Do you have advice for say young women or women who want to do this kind of work from when you're looking back on the things that you wish maybe you had done
5: differently or how? the I wish I had asked. I wish I had just knocked on the door and say, Hey, I know you guys all do this after the game is, can I join? And you know, what's worse, people are going to say no, or they're going to scratch their head and think about the issue. But either way, you start from a place of not being in that room. So, (laughs) you know, it doesn't hurt to ask.
2: Thank you so much for joining us today, Gloria. I really appreciate your
5: time and good luck with the WCC. Thank you so much. I appreciate you facilitating the conversation and having me on your show.
0: Sadly we have to revisit one of our evergreen themes here at Burn It All Down, domestic violence in the NFL. Amira, want to take the lead on this?
4: Yeah. So in the last week, we've seen once again that there's a lot of smoke and whistles and mirrors with the NFL when it comes to taking domestic violence seriously. And it's a constant reminder That they just really don't give a fuck. I'm not, I'm trying to cuss less, y'all, but this, this, this week has really tested that. So there's two different events that happened this week that relates to this conversation. So first, earlier this week, Ruben Foster was placed on the commissioner's exempt list. So he had been cut by the 49ers and picked up less than 24 hours later by the Washington football team on waivers. Actually, they were the only team to put in a waiver request and a lot of anonymous people in the league were like, why are you doing this? They also never contacted any police departments or anything to figure out what the details were with Reuben Foster's multiple domestic assault arrests and allegations um, for instance, the Philadelphia Eagles did call the Tampa Police Department to see what the deal was and after talking to the police department there, decided not to put in a claim on Waivers. So what made their acquisition worse was the terrible, terrible, I don't even have words for the ridiculous statement that they that they put out to justify the actions to justify their signing of Foster. So that happened earlier this week. And then at the end of this week, you had the Kansas City Chiefs cutting their standout running back, Kareem Hunt. Now, Kareem Hunt will remind us very much of Ray Rice because they have known about an incident in which he is pushing a woman and then can later see see him come back and kick her as she's kind of crouching down on the ground. And they knew about this incident and the league knew and everybody knew what has changed this week isn't that knowledge, but that TMZ broke the video out and put the video up. And so you have a kind of very similar trajectory as Ray Rice back in 2014, right? So you have uh, something they know happens, a kind of minimum consequence. And then when the video becomes public, it's the public outcry, that perception that then results in actual action being taken. And so extremely frustrating. Like we said, there was a lot of hand wringing and saying, we've learned from Ray Rice, we're going to handle this. But that's not the only incident that reminds us about domestic violence in the league. And I just want to take this moment before we transition to talking about that to remember to lift up and hold space for Cassandra Perkins. So five years ago this week, Javon Belcher, who was a Kansas City Chief player, murdered his then-girlfriend, Cassandra Perkins before driving towards Arrowhead Stadium and committing suicide. This murder-suicide reportedly shook the chief's organization. And it's something that we can't forget. When we talk about certain domestic violence cases, we have to remember that there was also one that included on property a murder-suicide of the mother of Javon Belcher's child and a five-year-old who's now being raised without her mother. And we know there's a high high rate of Black women dying at the hands of their partners. And this is something that I just want to hold space for as we think about this conversation, because this is a life and death conversation in many ways that we should treat it with that type of seriousness.
2: Jess? Yeah. I think on some level, it's remarkable how little we talk about Belcher and that case. And I think it goes back to Amira's point that we really like to see things and for whatever reason, respond to that. And I wanted to add just at the top last night I was preparing for this segment, and one of the secrets for me of the work that I do I don't know if it's actually a secret, but I don't read a ton of stuff if I don't have to, because I have to read so many cases of sexual assault and domestic violence just to do the work that I do. So I will purposefully not engage with stuff that I don't have to. So I had not read much about Reuben Foster in. Just as the news was breaking this week, I knew like as soon as I saw his name, I knew that it had come up before and that the 49ers had kept him then. So last night I was reading Lindsay's piece that she wrote this week for Think Progress, and it's very good. You should all read it about the NFL and domestic violence. And in there, she details what actually happened (laughs) with his case. And it's horrible. Like, of course it is. But the the actual details of it. It's one of those moments for me where I was reading it and I was like, how could anyone else read this and know this? And then sometimes my heart just breaks for how little we care about victims and what they go through and what the reality of this violence actually is. And for Doug Williams of the Washington NFL team to talk about this, and he said, and I'm just going to quote it. This is what he said about them acquiring Foster, quote, The high risk was the beat up that we're going to take from PR. We understood that from a PR standpoint and we're taking it. I don't even know. I don't even understand what these people are doing and the choices that they're making and how they cannot even hold for a second in their heads that there are actual people who are harmed. Like the high risk I hate the word risk. I hate when these teams use that. Who's actually taking the risk? Like, what's actual risk here? And then to actually use the language of beating up and to talk about it about yourself, I don't, oh, the arrogance of all of this. It just, it just breaks my heart. It was just zero self reflection
0: or intentional malice in that statement. It was shocking. I think you and Lindsay had had alerted it on social media and it it is heartbreaking and it's also enraging that they're allowed to just get away with this over and over.
1: Lindsay? Yeah, I feel like a broken record saying this and like it doesn't do any good I know it doesn't do any good saying this but I I have to say this right now they're worried about the risk with Ruben Foster they're they're willing to take the PR hit whatever that means with Ruben Foster yet they really need a quarterback yes. and they're not signing Thank Colin you. Kaepernick yes. so I mean it just that part you know mm-hmm. it, like, like I almost feel stupid even bringing it up because it's clearly not a point that anyone is caring about, right? Like, pointing out their hypocrisy. It's like sometimes with the GOP, like, pointing out the hypocrisy isn't doing us any good. Let's stop. But – I can't, it's so obvious, I can't let it go. You know, their, their quarterback just went down for the year. You know, they're in the playoff uh, hunt because the NFC East is garbage fire. And yet they're picking up Reuben Foster instead. You know, I wrote the piece that Jess is talking about on, I believe I published that on Wednesday. And it was called the NFL's Groundhog Day. And it was just about how every single time there's a domestic violence incident in the NFL, the NFL and the teams do the wrong thing. Like it's just staggering to see how they're repeating this same pattern over and over again in the past four years. And I wrote that two days before the Kareem Hunt video came out, right? (laughs) So it's just, you know, that wasn't even a part of this piece that I wrote, because, you know, that video hadn't even been out. And I wasn't that aware of what had happened in Foster's case, because it's so hard to keep up with all of this. But I just think it's just so it's so exhausting. And it's so, it's really defeating to just go through this process time and time again. I mean, I think one of the clearest examples in the past four years of the way the NFL's decision works right along inside law enforcement's decisions to continuously just put women back in danger is with Johnny Manziel, who, you know, domestic violence isn't a big part of his story. When people talk about it, it's more, you know, the drug abuse and the mental health. But I think we need to talk about the domestic violence. I mean, in the fall of 2016, the, he was pulled over by cops, because people have reported him having a big fight with his girlfriend in the car while driving, point where she was trying to get out of the car while it was going. So it takes a lot, I would think, to pull over a car for a domestic violence fight. But that's what happened here. In the dash cam video that was released, this was at the time, the woman was heard saying that she feared for her life. However, she did eventually, as the police were over there, recant what she was saying, or she said, you know, that she just wanted to go home, that... Everything was okay. She was clearly trying to cover up for Johnny. She was worried about how this was going to impact her career. The police witnessed bruises on her and scratches, but decided that that was just because she was hysterical and Johnny was trying to keep her from getting out of a moving car and that that's why she had these scratches on her. They also looked at her and said that she was hysterical and had clearly been drinking, whereas he seemed fine when he's admitted to having a couple of drinks. And it just seems like there are a lot of sexist reasons to think that a woman who has just been abused is the hysterical and probably drunk one. While the man who has an alcohol problem and is clearly okay, better at uh, hiding. Okay. With covering up his, his use and is the one behind the wheel, you know, wasn't seen as drunk and crazy. And anyways, they ended up just being released from the scene. She ended up releasing a statement saying that, you know, Johnny was, you know, that they were working through their issues privately. The NFL investigation went nowhere. He continued to start for the Cleveland Browns for a couple more weeks until his partying got in the way. And then the following January or February, I can't remember which one, but of 2017... There's another big domestic violence incident between Johnny Manziel and the same girlfriend. This time he ruptures her eardrum. She is heard, overheard by Bellhop saying she's afraid for her life. It's much more extreme than the first one, but the exact signs in that first incident were all there in the second one. And of course, this time he ends up getting indicted for domestic violence, though he did plead down. But it's just like, how did the NFL investigation, the police, everyone, how, how are we so still so not educated in all this that we didn't see the signs this first time? And that we let him completely get away with it and think it was okay. And then it happens again. And look, it was similar in the, you know, the Reuben Foster thing this, this week where, you know, they, they're like, oh, well she recanted. So that's fine. She said that she was lying and that's totally normal. So we're going to ignore that because he, you know, there was a domestic violence incident from back in, in January with Reuben Foster and this same woman.
3: Mm. Shireen. Yeah. I just wanted to jump off of what, Jess had said as well about the language being used for this. Now, the crimes and the violent crimes are absolutely atrocities in themselves, but the language being used here is also really problematic in such a huge way. And also just to Lindsay's point about Cap, I mean, there was a tweet that went around and it just stuck with me that if Colin Kaepernick had beat a woman, he would still probably be in the NFL. He would probably still be there because that's considered less egregious than kneeling to, you know, raise the issue of police brutality and anti-blackness, systemic anti-blackness in the United States. And, and that is so hard to process and digest, but it's I, from what I see is the truth. And also just really quickly, Johnny Menzel that Lindsay, Lindsay mentions, the other thing is the fallback. Johnny Menzel is in Montreal playing for the Alouettes in the CFL now. Like, there's always, there's always a fallback, and here the rhetoric around his past is non-existent. It's really, really not. And I remember when he st- initially got, you know, he was being looked at by Hamilton, lucky, very, very lucky that the advocates and women's rights activists in Hamilton really made a lot of noise, in so much that it was embarrassing for Hamilton and uh, the tie cats, and I think that and, and a friend of the show, Cricket, like she's a, I, she's a frontline worker with uh, survivors of violence, and she's a you know she brings a lot of awareness to it. She was like really involved in that campaign too, and that's good. But this is the process. This is really, really the process that there's always a fallback option for abusers.
2: Jess, yeah, just listening to Lindsay recap the Mandel story. One thing I just wanted to mention very quickly, you know. We've talked about this before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, but there's a very real reason that we talk about this a lot with the NFL around domestic violence, in part because there's a 24-7 sports media and the fan interest, but also that these are black men and as I often say that we have a, we're much more comfortable talking about criminality if we can put a black man's face on it. And and listening to Lindsay recap the Manziel thing, I was thinking about the fact that police officers have an incredibly high rate of domestic violence themselves. And so the idea that we are constantly relying on law enforcement to explain to us the public uh, what happened and how we should interpret that, and then layer on top of that, um, a sports media that's made up you know, 90% men to then interpret that for us. We just have to hold those thoughts as as we're getting this information and understanding of where it's coming from. Absolutely.
0: Lynn, you want to wrap it up?
1: Yeah, I just want to say that in all of these situations, what you have is teammates and coaches and family members and friends of these abusers who want the best in them. And and understandably, they know a different side of them and they see a different side of them. And because of that and because their lack of understanding of domestic abuse and how it works, they just feel like every single second chance is warranted or they feel like the accusations have to be a lie or they feel like the only way for any of this to be true is if this person is being completely set up. And, you know, I saw, you've seen that in Manziel stuff. You saw that with the Josh Brown, the, the kicker for the New York Giants forever ago. And I'm just so exhausted with us being so willing to give abusers of all kinds second chances, third chances, tenth chances of us believing in the good in these men, often men, so, so fully and concretely, because they were once a nice teammate, they were nice to me after a hard time in my life, that we will completely discard the victims in this. And it's just the strangest and most heartbreaking power dynamic. And we see it play out time and time again.
0: Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, The Burn Pile, where we gather up everything that's been awful in sports this week and set it aflame. Jessica, can you get us
2: started? Yeah, sure. So a couple of weeks ago, Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, released new proposed guidelines for Title IX in regard to how educational institutions are supposed to respond to reports of gendered violence. We all knew this was coming. They're finally here. The proposed guidelines do two main things. They reduce the legal liability for universities, and that's actually the biggest thing, and we really have to hold on to that. They reduce the legal liability for universities, and they focus on bolstering so-called due process rights for students who are accused of harming other students and violating the student code of conduct. More specifically, they would narrow the definition of sexual misconduct, meaning there'll be less cases for which Title IX is responsible. They would make it so schools only handle cases that happen on campus, or at school sanctions events, so I guess sorry if you're assaulted in an off-campus apartment by the person who sits near you in your astronomy class, they would encourage a higher standard of evidence, and they they would severely narrow whom someone must report to in order to initiate a formal investigation too bad if that person never hears about your case. As I always do when talking about Title IX, I want to reiterate the point that that the point of this federal statute is to make sure no educational institution taking money from the federal government is discriminating based on sex. This is a civil rights issue. Title IX is about ensuring that all students, regardless of their sex, are able to access education equally. So there's plenty to say about all these new proposed guidelines, and there's not time to say them all now. But what I want to point out is that when the new regulations go into effect, they will essentially offer more cover and less accountability throughout universities which is especially concerning when you think about athletic departments. As we've talked about repeatedly on this show, and we will continue to, collegiate athletic departments like to keep things in-house. There is pressure to protect the family, remain quiet. There are consequences for speaking up. I am worried about what this will mean not only for any victim whose perpetrator is in athletics, but specifically for student athletes who are harmed by other student athletes. Telling your coach or your trainer or your athletic tutor might not mean that any of them will be obligated by the Department of Education to do a damn thing about it. Things weren't great under the Obama guidelines, and those were the most progressive ones to date. Those guidelines were only the beginning of the change, and now, well, I mean, it's hard to know what the ripple effects of these setbacks are going to be. We also know the NCAA is not going to do anything about this issue, and now Trump's DOE is abdicating responsibility too. I'm too jaded when it comes to this topic to believe that most athletic departments, especially the ones involving a lot of money, run by male athletic uh, athletic directors at universities with male presidents, are going to feel motivated to address the problem of gendered violence on their own. Fans and the media are going to have to do that work, and (laughs) y'all, I don't really trust them to do it either. So... I want to burn all of this, but before I do, I also want to note that if you want to comment on these new proposed guidelines, the comment period is open now and will be for about another seven or eight weeks. Go to handoffix, as in nine, handoffix.org to find out more, and now let's just burn all of this. Burn. Burn. Amira.
4: Yeah, I want to just go back to Cream Hunt for one second to bring one aspect of this case or the narrative surrounding it, which is one of the things that happens in that video or in that incident is that Hunt and the rest of the folks with him allege that the woman who is in the video who gets pushed and then later kicked is that she was calling them the N-word. And this isn't the first time we've had a domestic violence, a kind of abusive case of of this nature in which it has been a black man responding to a white woman um, using that language. And the aspect of that I want to burn is the way that, I've seen certain people, black men, it, try to excuse the violence by saying, oh, well, she called them nigger. And so therefore, you know, ex- that's fine. And also at the same time, everybody who's like, all right, well, that doesn't matter because he hit her. And both things are absolutely like that type of reduction constantly, constantly is harmful, particularly to women of color who have to sit with and hold and labor under um, both of these things. Now, I firmly believe you shouldn't put your hands on people. Just don't do it. But I don't want to do that in the way that is dismissive. So many of us from a young age are taught if somebody calls you nigger, you hit them. Like it was taught that from as a child, like that's your first response. And it's like, I think that there needs to be like an actually robust and maybe it's an internal dialogue conversation about how, what that invokes and how you walk away in that moment so that the result is not hitting people. There's somebody who's sitting in jail for 10 years because a white woman called them nigger and he punched her and she died and she's dead. She has no life anymore. And he is sitting in jail for 10 years. Like that cannot be the solution to that. At the same time, stop excusing violence by saying, well, this is what she was called like it, it's terrible on both sides it's just like it's the most reductive thing and I, I find myself constantly enraged because I feel like a majority of the people having the conversation don't have the the range to understand the nuance they just don't and it's annoying and I'm over it and I want to burn it down burn.
0: Burn. burn burn Lindsay burn yeah
1: I Talk a little bit about Jalen Hurts. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone you any of you watched the Alabama, Georgia SEC title game. It was absolutely incredible yesterday. Alabama came back from I believe it was a two-touchdown, maybe more deficit to win it in the end. Look, it is pretty hard to ever root for Nick Saban (laughs) or Atlanta. Uh, I'm an underdog fiend. I love underdogs. However, what happened is the Alabama starting quarterback, Tua, got uh, injured. And so Jalen Hurts, who was benched last year in favor of Tua and has been mainly the backup all year long, was put in as starter uh, in the third quarter and ended up leading his team to the win. It was... Impossible not to root for this guy. It was just a great story. The part of this I want to burn is the fact that so many uh, capital S capital R <laughs> sports reporters—you guys definitely know the ones that I'm talking about—then decided to use this as a a chance to advance what one of my friends on Twitter very aptly put, is the humble Negro narrative, the humble Black man narrative of, well, he decided to not transfer away from Atlanta, from Alabama. He decided to stay in his place. He didn't ask for anything more. He was nice. And so this is what, and then, look, he got this great moment. So this is what all student athletes should, should do and kind of positioning him against a, Straw man of a selfish student athlete who does transfer for more playing time, who does want to actually, you know, want to make the best of their limited athletic career in different ways. Look, I, Jalen Hurts is incredible and in what he did. Like, I'm all, all aboard the Jalen Hurts train, all aboard what happened last night. It was incredible, but it's also very clearly the exception and not the rule. And we should just keep encouraging these student athletes to make the best decisions for themselves when it comes to transferring. You know, not all schools are Alabama, not all. Positions are the quarterback where it's so easy to shine if you even get a little bit of a, a leeway to stop using Jalen Hurts to then in his success story to then denigrate all other college athletes who do decide to transfer. There are so many good reasons to transfer and we let the coaches quit and leave these kids in the dust every single day. So I'd like to burn
0: that burn. Shereen.
3: I'm going to metaphorically burn men. I honestly, the trash, the levels of frustration all across the board, I just am so frustrated on many levels with the incessant, unapologetic, very disingenuous way that they come back and say, no, we'll do this. Okay, so other people who identify as men, collect these men, collect them and rein them in for their violence. There, we're talking about whether it's sexual abuse committed by heads of football federation. Yes, Afghanistan, I am looking at you. Whether it's the NFL, oh my God, Goodell, I'm looking at you. I haven't stopped looking at you, which hurts me internally. (laughs) I am honestly (laughs) whether whether it's Nike, which is Nike, which is you know festering this horrible culture. Whether it's the Mavs, whether it's Oh God, I could go on forever. If you listen to every burn it all down episodes, the 82 before this one will back me up on this. I just have had it with men. I've had it. So I realize that I'm not being very specific, but I don't need to be. And that's the point. The excuses, the lack of progress, the lack of change. I'm exhausted other women and envies are exhausted. Other men that are allies, I okay, you're allies, but guess what? Fix it because it's not good enough. I'm exhausted. I'm trying to do a very, very positive half glass full. Of, but let me tell you one thing that makes me less half glass full is men. So there, burn.
2: Burn.
0: Burn. burn. Speaking of men. <laughs> my burn <laughs> <laughs> My burn involves a group of men and they report on soccer in the English speaking press and this week I had the gall to criticize some of them for their coverage of the Copa Libertadores debacle in Argentina and my criticism was on a on a particular podcast and my criticism was not about one article but about a tradition Of using essentialism to explain what happens in Latin American soccer, specifically Argentina, that the River Boca final was, you know, the problem with it taking place has to do with an intrinsic passion in Argentine soccer that is violent. And it was really a caricature of working class Argentine fans. I didn't tag the author of a particular piece. I actually put forward a different piece that I thought was better, I did criticize uh, the piece in the New York Times and the Guardian pieces. And the response was amazing, because clearly, there's a group of British sports writers that have like a chat together or something that woke up and decided that I had offended them. And mostly, though the, the writers would agree with my analysis privately, publicly, they came at me for, quote, questioning their professionalism, because I criticized that they didn't speak Spanish. And one of them speaks Spanish. So one of them tweeted at me for six hours that he speaks Spanish. And I said, well, if it's not a language problem, it must be a critical thinking problem. (laughs) And well, right. I mean, right. I gave you an out. And I think if you use essentialism to explain something, it's very, very fair to question your professionalism because we should know better by now. So I would like to burn the fact that there's a gatekeeper and old boys club network that often plays good cop bad cop that doesn't actually read the work of women or listen to the podcast we're on but will back up any sort of challenge to their control over the field i made one mistake in a podcast that was not edited out despite my having wanted it edited out <laughs> that was enough to just tank an hour worth of analysis and so burn you burn your boys club So I don't know. This is like attached to Shereen. Burn. 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 Now after all that burning, we're going to celebrate some of the amazing women in sports this week and what they've accomplished. Before we go on to do that, we would like to recognize the death of former national China team player Zhang Yuing from lung cancer. Yuing was a 43-year-old woman who had played as a key member of the Chinese squad in two Olympic Games and three World Cups, so rest in power. Okay, honorable mentions this week go to the New Zealand Black Ferns. Their win over the Dubai Rugby Sevens Tournament was the fourth time. Hanifa Yousafi, the first Afghan woman to scale Mount Noshak. The Nigerian women's football team. The Super Falcons won the AFCON, their ninth AFCON title. Congratulations to them. Riley Morrison, a nine-year-old hoopster who wrote to Steph Curry because Curry's shoe, the Curry 5, is only made for boys and not girls. Steph Curry wrote her back and said, here you go. And now she's going to be one of the first to own a Curry 6.
4: And it's now corrected on the site so everybody can go get that for your nieces or daughters or whatever
0: or just reject consumerism of athletic shoes altogether <laughs> just them. another option <laughs> the eternal burn it all down struggle, the burn it all down struggle. <laughs> need four kids buy kids uh, uh, Heidi you <laughs> I'm only laughing so I don't burst into tears. (laughs) Heidi Johansson becomes the first female trainer in Danish professional men's football. The former team player, national team player, has been employed as a goalkeeper coach in the first division club, H.B. Cook. Congratulations. And can I get a drum roll? (laughs) Don Staley, named USA Basketball Coach of the Year. Woohoo! Woo! That was rousing. That was good, good <laughs> job. Okay, in these dark times, and literally for a lot of us, they are darker with the time and the sun shortening. What's keeping you all afloat, Amira? <laughs> <laughs> Curry sixes.
4: <laughs> I, know. I know. Yesterday, my sweet, sweet middle child, Jackson, turned six. Aww, um, happy birthday, Amira! Yeah, thank you. I love them. And I'm absolutely obnoxious. I celebrate it like it's really my day. But it is because I did that. <laughs>
3: you did.
4: Um. So Jackson turned six. That's certainly good. I'm teaching my last class on Tuesday. The semester is over. That is certainly good. I mean, I actually really love my students for both of my classes and they're doing amazing oral histories, really great sports podcasts. They're lovely. But I'm very ready for break, too. I also uh, have a busy week. So I'm going to get to see Lindsay, hopefully. Um,
3: Oh, jealous. (laughs)
4: <laughs> because Samari is performing at the Italian embassy again. So this week I'll spend half my week in D.C. doing that. And then I'm going to jump on a few planes and I'm going to head to New York for a talk at the Schomburg with Randy Roberts and Howard Bryant for their conversations in Black Studies. We'll be talking about athletic activism and race. So if you're in the New York area, come check us out. That's Thursday, December 6th. Seven, I think. Thanks, Bren. And also it will be live streamed. So I'll make sure to tweet out the link you can also check it there. So that's what's good in my life. Oh, and my half birthday is on Tuesday, and that's a thing that I totally celebrate. So wait, wait,
0: anyway. wait, wait. What's a half? Okay, birthday? Shireen, would you like to go next and have I, half birthdays as something you've just learned?
3: Yes, <laughs> I love my birthday. January twenty second is the best day of the entire year. What is the half birthday? And if I missed it, can I make a three quarter birthday? Oh, well, that might be a step too far. So a half oh, birthday. Oh, probably. So- <laughs>
4: It's so awesome. on Tuesday, on Tuesday I will be 30 and a half, but for real I <laughs> this is going to be a little sad. But the reason why I started celebrating my half birthday is because for me, like many children who were placed for adoption, my birthday wasn't necessarily a time that was super happy for me when I was younger. It was the day that I lost my first family. It was a day of loss and I always had a lot of conflicting feelings around it, even if I couldn't articulate it. So December 4th was far enough away that was kind of free from a lot of those baggage, but it contained a lot of joy. So it kind of became a joking thing I did growing up and I've just kind of stuck with it because I like to say 30 and a half, but really I just also can start a six months countdown to your birthday and who like does not like to celebrate themselves. So now my birthday is not kind of filled with the same type of package. I've been in reunion for a third of my life now. And I also just like like to celebrate myself generally. So that is why I'm still all in on half birthdays.
3: Okay. Happy half birthday. Okay.
0: Shereen, what's good?
3: I went to the Christmas market in Toronto in the distillery district yesterday. It was beautiful. I took my boys and my friend Amber and her son Amari, and it was just like the moms and the boys, and it was amazing. We paid for overpriced hot chocolate, $4 Canadian, for organic hot chocolate per cup, and I swallowed that, and I was like, no, this is festive. Um, It was freezing. It was wonderful. Everybody was out in their cute. Gear, we sat on a Ferris wheel and then it started to pour rain. (laughs) It was like, okay, so that was really fun and I'd never been before. And it's like a Toronto landmark, like the Christmas market. And then we went to the old spaghetti factory, which is really, really fun. And I found out they have halal meat, all their meat is halal. So it was like mind blowingly exciting for me because I'm relegated to automatically not eating meat when I go out. But this was so fun, like, y'all don't understand being able to have meatballs was just like so exciting. I was so excited. So the last thing that was really great for me this week was I actually reviewed and wrote a piece for the Shadow League on the movie called Tiger. It's a movie about Pardeep Singh, Nagra the boxer, who in 99 was banned from boxing because of his beard. He's a practicing sick. And the movie ha- was made and it was released on Friday. And I had a really, really fantastic interview with him and two of the actors, Michael Pugliesi and Prem Singh. So we'll put that The link there. But also speaking to Nagra was very cathartic for me because when back in the day when I was told I couldn't play soccer anymore because of my choice to wear hijab, I had heard about him and he fought the fight that I just didn't at the time. So that was really, really important for me this week.
2: All right, Jessica? Yeah, so I love the holiday season this time of year and in part because I just do a lot of baking and I just love baking, and I actually made Pop-Tarts last weekend, and they're beautiful, and they tasted amazing, and I put them on Instagram if you want to go look at my beautiful Pop-Tarts that I made, and I just want to... One of the best things about today for me, other than recording this podcast, is that number 10 Texas women's basketball team is hosting number six Mississippi State, and I'm going to go watch it. And if you don't know why this is a big deal, then you need to go back to listen to our recent episode where we had Erica Ayala on, and Lindsay and Erica really broke down why Mississippi State is such an exciting team. And of course, I'm always excited to see Texas play. So I'm going to go do that later today, and I'm very, very excited. It'll be my first women's basketball game of the season. Lindsay.
1: I'm still stuck on someone wanting to really want to celebrate their birthday <laughs> like, for six months. Like it wasn't it, like I get the half birthday thing, but when you said it's a six month countdown to your next birthday, <laughs> I just don't understand. I <laughs> Just like birthdays make me incredibly uncomfortable. I so admire how you and Shireen embrace them and lavish them and love them in these ways and I'm not like a shy person I'm very outgoing but birthdays make me want to go like like huddle in the corner I don't like them okay Anyways, luckily, I've, but apparently I have birthdays coming up too, because uh, Amir and I we'll are both win! June babies, so you know, that's something. But uh, you know, I did see my, I w- went to see Maryland play Georgia Tech this week, so anytime I get to women's basketball game, that is good. Notre Dame and UConn play this afternoon, so while I will not be there, I will be watching. Hopefully I will be watching in a good mood, because the Panthers will have snapped a three-game losing streak, which has me just furious, but we'll see what happens but also i'm just gonna piggyback off of jess as always it is december officially which means last night what did i do i watch christmas movies on Yeah,
2: i do that too i do a lot of that
1: that's good
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) cool i'm gonna go cut a christmas tree with my kids right after recording so that's what's good for me Hopefully that means that the fact that my house isn't super clean because it's the end of the semester will be covered up by beautiful pine scent emanating from the tree and thus covering up all the dirty dishes scent. (laughs)
4: You get a complete pass till grades are in. At least that's what I told my husband, so I'm going with it.
0: I know. It just always feels like there's an excuse. Like it was the World Cup, and then it was the semester starting, (laughs) and then it was – And it's like I always – Midterms. Yeah, that's right. Midterms, my half birthday. I mean, stuff is just like – it just piles up. So anyway, no, I'm really excited about it. There's a big farm around here, and I just – I love a tree, a real tree. I didn't grow up with one either, and I also have pretty ambivalent birthday and Christmas feelings. So <laughs> it's like the one thing I can totally get behind. So I'm excited about it. So Mary, sports watching and tree cutting and shopping, etc. This week.
4: Oh, oh, yes. Brenda! Guess what? what? While tomorrow is in rehearsal, last two nights ago whatever i did a solo escape room by myself <gasps> not only escaped i set a record of course you did. and i have a picture of me holding of course three course signs at the end i mean well, people, amira, me I'm right
0: people hold us back sometimes you gotta do
2: it solo <laughs> it's amazing well, no, no
0: i amira do you have a trophy for this because you should
3: send yourself one i know <laughs> you want to make me one <laughs> totally and also i think
0: it should be part of Bayad merchandise yeah, that trophies. We have like uh, yeah. a, like a, you can do But exactly, trophies. We have to make exactly. and you can like put you know whatever you want on, like um, you know what your choice of accomplishment.
3: I was just okay, gonna add one more coming. thing. I know we're we're okay. long, but Lindsay, I just wanted to tell you, heart. Felt and very sincerely that your birthday is very important to me because it's the day that you were brought into the world, and I'm going to celebrate your birthday if you don't want to because I love you and I love
0: that you're in the world and it's an important day. Thank
1: uh, you. I look forward to <laughs> because, of, <your laughs> celebration. because uh, of the fact that because of the
0: fact I love you, Lindsay. I'm going to ignore your birthday entirely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, Brenda. Oh, that's, true goodness. Goodness. that's what I yeah. want.
0: That's what I want. <laughs> okay. Happy all holidays, listeners. That's it for this week, and burn it all down. Although we're done for for now, you can always burn day and night, especially with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, teas, hoodies, bags, and soon-to-come trophies. The holidays are coming up soon, and what better way to tell someone you love them but by giving them a pillow that crushes toxic patriarchy. Please go to our store, Teespring.com slash stores slash burn it all down with some dashes in there. <laughs> it's on our, <laughs> it's pinned to our Twitter. Burn it all down lives on SoundCloud but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate. Let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at burn it all down, on Twitter at burn it all down pod, or on Instagram at burn it all down Pod, And you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, guest lists, and a link to our Patreon. We would always appreciate you considering becoming a patron. Okay, that's it. Until next time, I'm Brenda Elsie on behalf of Jessica Luther, Lindsay Gibbs, Shereen Ahmed, and Amira Rose Davis.